Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, host of Free Exchange and editor of CapEx. For this week's podcast, we're bringing you a recording of the most recent CapEx Live event, a conversation with Adrian Wooldridge. Adrian is the political editor and budget columnist for The Economist and the co-author with Alan Greenspan of Capitalism in America. Their book is a magisterial account of the economic rise of the United States. It explains one of the greatest success stories in human history, and in doing so, it makes the case for popular capitalism. This account of the past also serves as an invaluable guide to the present and how America today can rekindle the dynamism that has produced such spectacular results over the last few hundred years. Adrian kicked the event off with a brief explanation of why you can't understand the rise of America unless you understand the transformative power of creative destruction. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm particularly pleased to be here because of CapEx, which is a wonderful publication and which I read uh, religiously. Um, I wanted to say, I was decided to call this book Capitalism in America, and then realized that I was probably putting together the two most unpopular words in the English language, <laughs> but perhaps not quite so not in this popular room. in this room as outside this room. Um, but um, I want to really talk about two things, why America is so successful, and whether that success can be maintained in the future. Um, and this book really starts off with a thought experiment. It's, it's, it starts off by imagining a meeting of Davos in 1620 with all the world's great and the good going to Switzerland somehow, gathering there, and discussing the question of what would be the great power that would dominate the world in the next few hundred years. Um, and you could hear people there making a compelling case for all sorts of parts of the world. Um, China, the world's biggest civil service, the world's most popular populous cities, the world's greatest scholarly class, India, the world's most multiracial, multireligious society, Spain with its empire in Latin America, um, even perhaps some people might say Britain, who you know it had invented parliamentary government, it had invented the joint stock company, it was just about to make a break from this terrible ossified continent of Europe uh, to pursue an independent global strategy. You could hear all sorts of cases being made, but nobody would have made a case for the United States. It would have been completely unmentioned. The United States in 1620 was a complete irrelevancy, sparsely populated. It was a theater of competing powers trying to dominate it, but it was just not part of civilization. Now, of course, the United States is 25% of the world's GDP. It dominates 
all of the, the most innovative areas of the world's economy, um, and it's really defined the 20, 20th century. You know, the United States, above all, helped us to beat communism and helped us to beat fascism. So it's been an extraordinary uh, success story. So what this book tries to do is to explain why this country came from nowhere, the middle of nowhere, and dominate, dominated the future and dominates the, 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 the present. And it looks at various things that made the United States successful. You can look at the size of the country, a huge chunk of the earth. You can look at the diversity of its, of its economic resources, from fish, which are so important early on, to iron, to, um, to maize, to um, any form of agricultural product you can, you can imagine the citrus is in. In California and Florida, it's a, just a gigantically, naturally wealthy part of the world. You can look at the luck of its birth. America was very lucky in its parentage, that it was the product of Anglo-Saxon civilization rather than the product of, uh, let's say, Latin American civilization, because we had common law, we had joint stock companies, we had the rest of that. You could look at the fact that it, um, it, uh, when it was born, it was the first country in the world to be born in the age of business. It was born just after the publication of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. It was, as it were, born as a business civilization. And if you look at Britain, for example, we've been very hampered by the legacy of an aristocratic civilization, or European countries have been hampered by the, the legacy of a previous civilization. America never had that. Um, so there are all, and then of course immigration, bringing in people from all over the world and bringing in very talented people from, the, from all over the world. So there are all sorts of sort of individual reasons you can push, you can point to for the extraordinary dominance of the United States. But what we argue in this book is that there's a single thing that holds these things together, um, which is Schumpeter's notion of creative destruction. What Schumpeter argued was that for an economy to be successful, you have, to constantly, you have to constantly shift resources to areas where they're most productively used. And that process of shifting resources um, to, to be creative is, by its nature, um, a, a destructive process. It means that old ways of organizing organ, uh, organizations, companies, and the rest of them, old ways of doing business are put out of business, are destroyed, are marginalized, are replaced. Um, it is, in a sense, Creative destruction is destruction that is creative. You can't have one uh, without the other. Um, and that whereas large numbers of countries around the world have been very resistant to creative destruction, Britain has always been uh, slightly tense and worried about creative destruction. Most European countries, most um, Latin American countries as well, because people see the immediate downside and they don't see the long-term advantage. Governments are very... Uh, in, in, want to sort of calm down the process of creative destruction, whereas you've got resistance to creative destruction all around the world. America is the country, above all countries, which has been, which has embraced creative destruction, which has thought that creative destruction uh, is a good thing. Again, the size of the country has helped that. You know, America, because it's so big, it's got lots of space that it can waste. It can <coughs> move resources from one place to another. If Detroit doesn't work, you can shift your life and your future to. To, to Florida or the rest of it. In a small country like Britain, if one industry collapses, everybody notices, everybody's worried about it. In a big country like America, you've just got wastage you can do. You go to the far west, you go to California in America, you see all these ghost towns which are all over the place. They don't see the mine, they just move, uh, move and, uh, and go on. So it's partly 
created as such. It's partly the Constitution of the United States. One of the most remarkable things about the United States is that the Constitution uh, is something which puts big, which puts very precise limits on the power of the government. Um, it gives people, the population, enumerated rights. It sets up a system of paralysis at the heart of government, whereby you have lots of checks and balances which limits what government can do. So that means that there's much less pressure on an American government to intervene in the economy, to slow down or to try and manage this process of, of creative destruction. Um, so you have all sorts of um, constraints on creative destruction, all sorts of opportunities for, for, for creative destruction. So more than anywhere else, America has been willing to, 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 to take the sharp side of creative destruction in order to have the, 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 the advantages. And if you want to look at the extraordinary power of creative destruction, uh, in terms of reorganizing the economy. Um, look at America between, let's say, eight, the end of the, the Civil War, 1865, to 1900. I mean, when you get the economy completely reorganized on the basis of um, steel, railroads, um, and oil. You have industries which come almost from nowhere. Uh, um, America's in no position in the steel industry in 18, 1865, no position in the oil industry, which hardly exists anyway. Uh, and railroads are very limited. And by 1900, America dominates all of these industries. America's built almost all the, the, the railroads uh, in, in the world, far more than, than Europe. It's got 90, I think Rockefeller has about 90% of the world's um, oil reserves under his control. Carnegie is the biggest steel producer in the world. Carnegie, in 1860, steel is dominated by Britain. By 1900, Andrew Carnegie, on his own, produces more steel than the whole of the United Kingdom. So America grasps, it sees this new world um, of rail moving people around, steel uh, making physical products stronger, and, and, uh, and oil, and grasps them. You see again that, that pattern being repeated, I think, in the, the 1980s and 1990s, when you have the rise of the information technology, which is industries which are reshaping the world just as fundamentally as um, as oil and steel did earlier, uh, and again, it's American companies that, 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 that do this. Um, and I would put three things at the heart of this. One is America's admiration <coughs> for entrepreneurs, that the, um, America, more than any other country, has embraced, celebrated, and empowered entrepreneurs, whereas in Britain, the highest thing you can possibly be is a landed aristocrat. And once you get really, really rich, you sell up and you get a house in Hampshire or somewhere like that, a large house in Hampshire. I have a small house in Hampshire, a large house in Hampshire. <laughs> um, and celebrate being uh, uh, you know, head of your community. In the United States, there's nothing higher than being uh, an entrepreneur. And if you're a, a big, successful entrepreneur, all you want to be is an even bigger, even more successful entrepreneur, as, as, as we see with the technology titans uh, at the moment, and particularly Jeff uh, Bezos, who's, I think, the most imperialistic of them. Of, of them all. So they, they, America embraces entrepreneurs more than anybody else. Secondly, America embraces corporations. Corporations are the institutions which translate the power and entrepreneurial zeal of the individual into something bigger than, than that, 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 who give it scale, who give it scope. And again, America has been the country that has embraced these things um, more firmly than anywhere else. First of all, entre uh, corporations started off as being institutions which had to fulfill a public role. They, they, you, to, in order to get limited liability for a, a, to, to be a company, 
you had to get very specific permission from the government to build a bridge, build a canal, do something like that. America was the first country in the world which said, get rid of all of that. Anybody can set up a company with limited liability, whatever, they, you know, whatever they're going to do with it. They don't have to build a bridge to, for, for, for the good of the state. That happens in America before anywhere else. Second is Britain, but it happens in the 1830s in the United States. So America is the first country to make limited liability <coughs> a widespread asset. And then America is the first company, country to build giant corporations, which it does in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, which have huge scale and scope, which have, which have uh, large managerial classes, um, and which, um, w w which can operate on a continental-wide basis. So enthusiasm for entrepreneurs, um, enthusiasm for corporations, and willingness to give those corporations a lot of power. And finally, I would say an incredible capacity <laughs> to reinvent itself. America reinvented itself in the 1930s when the economy was in a, in, in a mess, and then it came back in the 1940s after that with a much more powerful economy than it had in the 30s. Indeed, I think by the end of the 1940s, about three quarters of the world's manufactured goods <coughs> come from the United States. Again, in the 1970s, when you have the car industry, the steel industry going down the drain, in the 80s, America then reinvents itself again through this process of creative destruction. And this brings me to the, to the final point I want to make. There's something very odd is going on in the United States at the moment, that the appetite for creative destruction is being dulled. If you look at all of the measures of creative destruction um, that, that, that really matter, um, look at company creation. It's lower now in the United States than, than, than it has been at any point since the 1970s. If you look at geographical mobility, America is much less geographically mobile than it has been before. If you look at upward <laughs> social mobility, America has lower upward social mobility than most European uh, countries do. If you look at large areas of, 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 of innovation, um, even financial services. I think one of the strange things about going to the United States is you know, you still pay for things with checks or they put in your credit card. Whereas here, you don't have co contactless stuff, you don't have cashless stuff in the way that you do in many European countries. So America's appetite for innovation seems to be on the decline. And the really big question that's facing us, I think, for the future is whether America can regenerate itself as it did in the, in, in, in the 40s and it did in the 1980s, or whether we're seeing a long-term decline in the country, a long-term decline in appetite for creative destruction. Because if that's the case, the future is not going to belong to the West, it's not going to belong to liberal countries, because Europe doesn't have any of the things that we really need in terms of dominating the world. It's going to belong to, belong to China, so um, that's worrying to me. Thank you. That's a very uh, cheery note to <laughs> talk on. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of start where you, where you picked off, actually, um, with this, this uh, declining appetite for yeah. creative destruction. Because one interesting thing about America today is that's undeniably the case. But it's still true that um, America is the home of the, uh, you know, the, the home of all the tech giants. It's the home of, sure. it's the place where the, the latest yeah. industrial revolution has, yeah. has taken off more, more, more so than anywhere else. So how do you, my first question is how you explain that kind of paradox? Well, I, I think what happened was that in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, you had a fantastic wave of entrepreneurial capitalism, uh, of entrepreneurial innovation, um, unleashed by you know, a process of deregulation, in, in, unleashed by the fact that you had so many, this entrepreneurial ability of people to take, take an idea and turn it into a big company. But what you're getting now is a whole series of things that really, really worry me. One is that 
the, 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 the giants, the tech giants, seem to be not quite immune from competition, but they seem to be stuck there at the top of, of the economy. So if you went to Silicon Valley in the 1980s, everybody wanted to set up a company. You talked to pe people, they wanted to set up a company, it, wanted, it was going to be the killer app, it was going to be the definitive company, and it was going to be an absolutely marvellous <coughs> thing, and maybe tomorrow's uh, Bill Gates. Now if you go to Silicon Valley, all, what they want to do is to come up with one idea which they can sell to one of the giants, one of the incumbents, uh, so they can, they, they can retire. And what you have is these incumbents, which are basically in the process of buying up companies, to not quite to kill off the ideas, but to incorporate those ideas. They're in the process of, um, they use all sorts of things like non-compete clauses to tie in human capital so that human capital won't go anywhere else. Uh, they're incredibly litigious, if that's the right word, if, I, if I'm pronouncing it rightly, litigious, I suppose, is the word. Um, I remember I got, I got into some argument with Google for, at one point, um, and Google, I think, had 50, has 55,000 employees, of whom 1,000 are lawyers. So they're, you know, so you have very big incumbents that are dominating markets. And one of the things we talk about in our, one of the things we look at in our book is what happens to the steel industry in the United States in terms of cost and innovation. From about 1865 to 1900, you have a reduction in the price of steel of about 90% because of Carnegie and the innovations that he keeps pushing. Then, by about 1900, you have the creation, just after 1900, you have the creation of US steel. And once you get US steel in place, basically this, the, 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 the long-term reduction in prices stops. So you get no more price reduction, no more innovation. You have powerful incumbents, i.e. the US steel company, which basically are sitting there in this fat and happy way until the 1970s when they're destroyed by foreign competition. And I wonder if we're going through that inflection in the United States now, that, that, that because history speeded up in a sense, that, the, that these companies which came from this incredible ferment of creative destruction in Silicon Valley in the 1990s are now incumbents, which are not going to be as innovative as they were because they're just concerned with defending their, fortifying their position. Uh, on that parallel with that, with that period, obviously the the political backlash to, yeah. to, to the to those um, changes in steel and oil and so on was was a bit was the big antitrust um, yeah. movement. Um, is that something? I mean, as well, that's, I guess there's two questions. As a prediction of whether is that where you think American politics is going in terms of the tech giants, and secondly, you know, to what extent is the problem of these um, big tech giants one that can be fixed by um, those kinds of um, those kinds of what we would call competition? Um, you know. Well, the, I mean, the problem of um, oligopoly or monopoly or whatever you want to call it is not confined to tech. I mean, it's happened very rapidly in tech because of uh, economies of scale and network effects and, and that sort of thing. But if you look at the American economy as a whole, you tend to have a lot of very dominant, not particularly innovative players in, in, in charge of it. So if you look at the financial services sector, you've got you know, credit card companies like Visa and Amex, which... Are, have very high profits in the United States, much higher in the United States than they do outside the United States, and they're not very innovative. Um, if you look at the airline industry, you basically it's a crappy industry with really bad service and not very much competition. Um, and so you have a you know you have this big three all over the place uh, in America to a very worrying extent. Now, in terms of the backlash, we are certainly getting a populist backlash against the uh, against the, the plutocratic class. Um, but it's a, it's a very peculiar one. I mean, in the, in the late 19th century, 
what you had was a populist back, backlash, which was basically sort of progressive, basically left-wing, which said what we need is more government intervention, government planning, enlightened bureaucrats and guardians um, help, helping us out. Um, and that's obviously had a big effect uh, in terms of the introduction of sanitation, in terms of the introduction of urban planning, in terms of the, the legal system and, and, and the beginning of an antitrust movement. Um, so people saw the salvation to the problems of big corporations to be, to, to, to be, um, to be government, enlightened government. Um, now you have a much more inchoate uh, populist backlash, which is coming you know, from the left and Bernie Sanders, who, who, who like <coughs> lots of those things, but also equally coming from Trump supporters um, um, who want less government, or some of them want less government. They're very confused about what they think about government. But it's a very, um, it, it's, it's a very in, uh, confused, inchoate uh, movement, and it's not quite clear where it's going to where it's going to go. Um, we did see the beginnings of quite a, a sophisticated um, sense um, of antitrust um, in the Obama administration. Um, the, 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 the Council on Economics uh, advisors produced a number of reports saying that the American economy is, is too uh, is too concentrated, um, and um, particularly outside tech, actually. Um, but that's died down, and Trump's not very interested in that, so it doesn't seem to be carried forward in any other way. And the, and the arguments about antitrust are much more complicated now than they were in the late 19th century because, 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 um, because of tech. Um, if, you take the, if you sort of take the left-wing side of that, um, yeah. of that movement, it seems to me that that's actually <coughs> the antithesis of this book, really, because yeah. your book is a book about American, exceptionalism, American economic yeah. exceptionalism, or at least the economic consequences of... American exceptionalism. Um, and one of the striking things about the left in America is this sort of, why can't we just be like Europe, is, is, a, is, a, big sort of, is a big strand of argument that the likes of Bernie Sanders would make. Yeah. So what do you think explains that? And do you think there's a kind of, is that, just a, is that just a straightforward political disagreement? Is that something deeper about American identity? Um, you know, the, the, the cultural values that are behind all these things that have made America successful, are they, are they fading too, or is it...? Uh... Well, it, it, I, I think they are to some, to, to some extent. One of the things that America has got at the moment, which is something that Europe uh, uh, has got as well, Schumpeter said that one of the problems with, with, with capitalism was that, just as Marx said that capitalism would produce its own gravediggers in the form of the working class, and Schumpeter said, you're right, that uh, Marx is right that it will produce its own gravediggers, but they won't be the working class. They'll be sort of tenured intellectuals, academics and intellectuals and journalists and those sorts of people, who are basically, and film producers and the rest of them, who basically make their living out of decrying the productive economy um, and um, saying, that, saying that we need more intellectuals to be in charge. We need to bind, bind, bind companies in, in various ways. And that these ultimately would sap the entrepreneurial <coughs> spirit. And I think that's happened in the United States. You know, we used to think it used to, we used to think of the American intelligentsia as being basically pro-business. Certainly, it was very pro-business in the late nineteenth century. Walt Whitman wrote some of the best best um, things ever written about the the, the dynamic power of, of of business. And now, I think what you have is an intellectual class in the United States that's basically European, 
um, in the sense that it doesn't like business, it does like regulations and things like that. Now, paradoxically, A, they don't understand Europe, because if you talk to them about what's going on in Sweden, they imagine that Sweden is like it was in the 1970s, rather than what it is now, which is, which is, which should be ironically, completely transparent. Ironically, you, um, a lot about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But secondly, they're all, you know, a lot of them are work, uh, 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 can afford to be academics and can afford to be, uh, do these things, partly that they're working for private universities which pay them very decent amounts of money, and we don't have that many private universities in, in, in Europe, and partly because they have very generous pension funds which are doing extremely well out of, out, of, uh, out of this system. So you have this peculiar system whereby these pension funds are recycling all their money into producing the, the works of Robert Reich and the rest of them. But, <laughs> um, well, maybe maybe we should um, go into that. Um, well, something related to that. And you, why don't you talk through the, the as I said, two big policy recommendations in the book at the end um, to do with entitlement specifically is, is what I'm thinking of. But well, I mean, yeah. The, 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 what we argue in this book is that the reasons for the slowing dynamism of the United States. Um, are not um, unfixable. They're not so profound that they're unfixable. One of the, the, the most interesting books recently published uh, about the American economy is, 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 is a book called The De Decline and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon. And what Robert Gordon argues is that the American growth rate uh, and productivity growth rate is inevitably going to slow because of the nature of modern technology. He argues that <coughs> IT is not a general purpose technology in the way that electricity or car motor cars were in the late 19th century. It's going to have a very limited impact on the whole of the American economy. It's going to change only a few things and then not very, then not very much. So he has presented this whole big argument about why it's inevitable. It's built into the nature of the economy that American growth will be slower in the future. He would say the same about Japan uh, and Europe. And what we argue in this book is that that's not right. That, in fact, IT is a general purpose technology. It's incredibly powerful, uh, and it's becoming incredibly pervasive. So it's changing the, the world of auto manufacturing. It's changing the world of medicine. It's touching and changing and rendering more efficient every possible aspect of, of, of American life. So we're, we are potentially in um, the world of, in a world of very rapid productivity growth. So the reasons why productivity growth is not advancing as quickly as we'd hope is not because of technology, it's because of public policies. It's because of policies which have been badly organized. And we focus in particular on two policies. One is entitlements. And we argue that American entitlements are too generous and too badly designed. And because they're gener too generous and too badly designed, essentially they're going to, to um, overwhelmingly to retired people. Um, because we're funneling too many social resources to retire people, people retire too early, and they get too much state money, ultimately. Because you're doing that, you're crowding out <coughs> private investment, um, and also you're crowding out public investment, because entitlements entitlements are legally mandated. So when the government is told you have to spend this money on these retired people, they have these events, that shifts money away from things like schools, things like bridges, things like roads. So you're allocating all of this societal surplus to a bunch of consumers who've actually had a fairly privileged and rich life. And what we argue is that to, to deal with that, 
you can deal with that without imposing very much pain on people by simply raising the level of, re uh, of retirement uh, a little bit, linking it to, to, to people's life expectancy, and perhaps raising taxes a little bit and reducing entitlements a little bit. And that will balance, balance the books. And you have to remember, when, in 1935, when the uh, social security system was established, people were expected to live about two years after retirement. That's the actuarial mm -hmm. thing. Now they're expected to live, they, now you might live 15, 20, or more years. So you just have to delay <coughs> the level of retirement. The second thing we talk about is, uh, is, is the financial system. And what happened with the 2008 financial crisis was devastating for the economy. We still haven't recovered from it. And basically, we had to allocate a lot of money, a lot of public money, to bailing out banks which had behaved very badly. Uh, and our response to that, the American response to that, is to create very, very complicated uh, legislation, um, which, which is the Dodd-Frank Act, um, which tried to specify all sorts of ways uh, in which banks should behave. And what that does is, A, allow big banks to entrench their position, because they're the only people who can do this stupid piece of legislation. Um, the, um, it's much of that legislation is actually written by lobbyists employed by the financial services industry, so again, it, it entrenches incumbents. And three, it's, uh, it, it, it's quite possible for unscrupulous or clever people or clever unscrupulous people or some combination of the two to, to get round all of those, those rules, because they're too complicated. You can't... You can't I can't really control what people are doing in the financial sector. So what we're saying is you should have a different form of regulation which will make it much more unlikely that we'll have devastating financial crises in the future, and that is basically to address the issue of leverage, to force banks to hold much more capital in reserve so that they're much less liable to be felled and to need a bailout when it comes to future crises. So force them to have, we say, 25 30% of their... Uh, of, of their assets in reserve, um, and you know when Lehman, I think Lehman, when it went down, had two to three percent of its assets. assets in, reserve. in other words, lower the force them to lower the the, the, the level of leverage in the economy. And uh, there's a sort of broader point. I mean, what's true of finance? I think you would argue in the book is true across the economy that there's been a there's a kind of cronyism about American capitalism Massively. in which um, absolutely you know vested interests are uh, do quite well in Washington and. Um, you know, the, you have these problems like occupational licensing, I think you're critical of, and um, you know, the rules are written by the big players basically to keep them. Yeah, again, that's a way in which America has become more like Europe in that you know, Washington um, is a city of lobbyists and regulators, and it's a big, wealthy city. It's probably one of the wealthiest areas on, in, in the United States. One of the bizarre things that's happened uh, in the United States is that I think in 1950, um, about up at the most 5% of the population required licenses to operate, occupational licenses. Now it's about 25% of people have occupational licenses. So if you want to be a hairdresser or a wig maker or an internal florist, uh, internal, an internal designer or a florist, you have to get these licenses, which are, can quite often say, well, you have to get a BA, you have to do study with us for two years, things like that. And these are all basically defending vested interests. I mean, I, even I, I, you think of something like, something like Sidney Webb, who was one of the great architects of the welfare state and one of the great passionate believers in the power of government. But even Sidney Webb didn't say, ah, internal uh, interior design, that really needs to be something regulated and controlled by the government. You know, it's, completely, uh, it, it's completely insane. The other thing that I failed to mention, I should have done, is 
is disability benefits. And disability benefits um, ha have, um, when you think about the entitlements, disability benefits have gone from an almost insignificant chunk of the population, let's say 2% of the population, to um, 7 or 8% of the population are now claiming disability benefits. Uh, and that seems to be unlikely that people have got that much more unhealthy, there's an obesity problem, but not that much. And also people are doing less physically demanding work, so it seems strange that that should, should be the case. Um, and I wonder if people are being shoved onto these roles. But once you're on the role, uh, disability benefit, you don't get on it, off it, because you're, you're, if you're presumed to be disabled, you're presumed to be untrainable, you can't be used, despite the fact that, 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 that um, FDR was disabled but managed to be quite a successful president in the United States. Um, and I saw one study that said that, um, that looked at 10 years' worth of disability claimants. It said that at the end of a 10-year period on, disab uh, on disability, only 4% of people have gone back to work. So basically, if, you, if, if you're called, you're, 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 you're classified as disabled, you're cut off from the retraining and training system, and you're almost permanently on the country's roles, and lots of these people are on those, those roles for odd reasons. So that's another area in which entitlements are really crushing the productive economy or taking people out of the productive economy. On the uh, regulation point, I enjoyed uh, learning in your book that um, Calvin Coolidge was so dedicated to limited government and so hated this kind of growth of, of government that he, as a point of principle, only worked for four hours a day Absolutely. whilst president. And insisted on at least eleven hours. Yeah, no, he was so a mighty sleeper. He he's a, he's he was, one of the uh, sort of yeah, the sort of one sleepers. of the heroes yeah. of the book, isn't no, it? No, he, he tried to sleep as much as he could, you know, most of the afternoon, <laughs> long nights, because he thought that when he was asleep, you know, he was doing as little harm as any president could possibly do. And it's, it's a great tradition which Ronald Reagan revived. Uh, and, 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 and I remember somebody said, actually, the deficit isn't really a joking matter, but Reagan said at one point, when somebody said, aren't you worried about the, the deficit? Reagan replied, yes, yes, I'm terribly worried about the deficit. It's caused me many sleepless afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, so, so just to go, go backwards a bit, um, Creative destruction, as you yeah. said, is, is really at the heart of the book. And you explain why there's this, there's this tolerance for it in America that yeah. there isn't in other countries, or at least there was. Um, I think it's worth digging into that a little bit, just yeah. because I wouldn't like this room to go away with the impression that, you know, that that meant that there was, it was sort of a kind of, kind of smooth sailing. I mean, there's, yeah. huge, there's huge political um, um, unhappiness um, uh, as a result of uh, as a result of these economic forces. Um, uh, whether that's at the end of the 19th century or during the Great Depression or today, arguably. So, you know, may maybe explain in a little more detail what you mean by sort of tolerance for that creative destruction. And it doesn't mean kind of, um, you know, it, there, were, there are basically, to put it bluntly, there are people that are very pissed off about uh, big economic changes in America. It's, it's how the system kind of copes with it. Is that, is that what you're arguing? Creative destruction creates, by its very nature, Losers as well as winners, um, and it creates lots of unhappiness. And when you have a period of very rapid creative destruction, as you had in America in the in the late nineteenth century or in the nineteen eighties, you have a lot of resistance uh, created. A lot, of, you know, quite often violent resistance, um, but it's and certainly bad-tempered resistance. And you have resistance from farmers. Um, in the United States, you had a lot of very violent agricultural protests, um, 
you have resistance from from um, workers, um, manual workers from from, from um, uh, and again a lot of very violent protests in, in the United States, particularly Carnegie. Um, Carnegie Steel had a lot of um, lockouts, which turned 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 to violence. You have resistance from from intellectuals, from um, people who see this as being uh, destroying established ways of life, uh, and who also see the pollution and the uh, uh, and that sort of side of things. And you also have resistance, and we should never forget this. Some of the most vigorous resistance to creative destruction comes from capitalists. I mean, if you're a capitalist who's made his money out of um, you know, horse buggies, you don't like Henry Ford coming along and, 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 and putting you out of business. And you, you have a lot of capitalists you know, in, the, um, in, in one industry after another who've, who've invested a lot of money in stopping change from happening. And let me also point out that um, a lot of this creative destruction is quite nasty. And a lot of, one of the striking things about these entrepreneurs um, is that they're crazy people. They're, they're, they're sort of um, unprincipled people or they're unflinching in their willingness to pursue their vision. Um, and so many of them, um, well, Henry Ford was, was a literally crazy person, I think. Um, but they're, they're, they're so obsessed by their vision that they do things that normal people wouldn't do. So this process of creative destruction is, is uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a particularly nice process, but it is a process that by, as it works itself out, ultimately produces a more productive economy. It increases output per hour and makes all the, the wealth um, and the resources which we collectively take for granted, granted possible. But it, you do have a set of uh, reactions against it. And why those reactions don't have the same effect um, as we do in Europe is a complicated story. I think, as I said, that the size of the country, you could, there's always somewhere else that you can move your factory or move your operations. Um, the um, the weakness of relative weak weakness of, of trade unions um, again, which has got something to do with the, the size of the country. Um, the fact, the assumption that is very widespread in American culture that self help, <coughs> entrepreneurialism are the default position of government, something, and then the, ultimately the constraints on the ability of government to interfere in the economy. You know, even in, in the 1930s, when you had somebody like FDR in a state of, uh, America was in a very desperate strait, and F FDR was very committed to changing things and had you know, huge majorities in Congress, um, was suddenly flummoxed by the Supreme Court, which told him to stop doing it. And when he tried to pack the Supreme Court, he, he, he failed to do that. So this, this system means that um, it's harder for America to, 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 to restrain the forces of of creative destruction, although this sort of weird combination of legalism and the regulatory state seems to have managed to do it more recently. There's a lot of, uh, not just in America, but in Europe too, there's a lot of soul-searching at the moment about capitalism and, you know, any politician that wants to be yeah. anything close to serious has to give a big speech about the future of capitalism and how, what, what, we, what we should do about it. And, and when, if they talk about creative destruction, they will generally say, of course, uh, this is absolutely uh, an essential feature of capitalism. You know, this is um, what drives innovation. And we, as politicians, we love innovation. Um, but, and then there's always, there's always a but, and then the but is, um, but we must make sure we sort of minimize the downsides and we compensate those who are the losers from economic change and so on. Your 
you know, not even really reading between the lines. I think you explicitly say in the book, you know, that's not how it works. Basically, that that if you do that, you take you, you can't have the good bit without the bad bit. I, I think that's true. That's I, mean, I think it's true that. Let me let me backtrack a bit. I think I don't think that you can have sustained economic growth mm-hmm. without destruction. You can't have the creative side of innovation without destruction because what you mean um, by, cr- by creative destruction is shifting resources to the areas where they're most efficiently used and that means um, to innovative products rather than old products to people in innovative industries rather than in new industries. But that doesn't mean that society in general can't then step in to do things about the, 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 the losers. So I think the way that you need to address the, the downside of creative destruction is by not, not by stopping creative destruction, not by saying, let's have no more um, internet or the rest of it, but by... by taxing by, by robots or whatever. Taxing ro- well, taxing robots perhaps. But, um, but, but by looking, uh, you know, by picking up the pieces, as it were, and by addressing particularly problems of investment in, in, in human capital... And I think that's um, in the one of the things in the United States that's that, that, that's been quite good is we tend to think that the only institutions or the primary institutions that should be stepping in to deal with the downside of creative uh, destruction is the government. And the United States has been much better at having a very wide range of institutions, from churches to voluntary organisations to philanthropists. Uh, that have stepped in to deal with the downside of creative destruction. And I talked a lot about the, the way that entrepreneurs have driven um, American growth and the America's appetite for entrepreneurs is, is, is unparalleled. But a lot of what things that happen with entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs, when they reach a certain stage, um, become philanthropists. And they apply that entrepreneurial genius to philanthropy and they build huge philanthropic empires. One of the things they're trying to do with these philanthropic empires is to solve the the problems, the institutional voids, the problems that are created by their own industries. So what Carnegie did famously was to was to put a hell of a lot of money into libraries. Um, he had a hell of a lot of money and he put it he put it into libraries. Um, Rockefeller again, um, you know, putting a lot of money into into higher education. Um, so there are lots of ways of addressing the downside of uh, of creative destruction, which aren't just to do with taking money away from entrepreneurs and are not just to do with empowering governments. Uh, again, the role of religion, which we don't talk about enough in that book, actually, is, is very important in that. Okay, a couple of couple more questions for me and then, then we'll open it up. But um, you, uh, I, I'm interested, while you're writing the book, um, two questions about what you learnt during uh, that process. The first is, was there a feature of this America, this question of why America had prospered in the way it has? You know, what did you what was underappreciated beforehand in your mind, and you came out thinking that was much more important. Second question is, which period, um, when you were writing about, uh, about it, did you think had the most uh, relevance or lessons for, t- for today? Yeah, but, but fascinating questions. Um, I think the thing that really struck me when I was writing the book, and I was constantly taken back to looking at it, um, was agriculture. Just the amount of innovation that's going on in agriculture. Um, and the amount of change that goes on in agriculture. Um, you know, basically, if you start off in the 18th century, almost everybody's working in agriculture, and they're working in various sort of inefficient ways. By today, 2% of the population is working in agriculture. And you have a whole succession of innovations uh, in agriculture that are um, extraordinary, not just in terms of the application 
of the mechanical reaper, which I think renders about 90% of the workforce redundant. You know, you're just replacing huge numbers of people who are doing backbreaking and unpleasant <coughs> the task of reaping. Um, but um, also in terms of genetics, uh, in terms of the, the, the breeding of, uh, of plants, you get a lot mm. of people, and also more tragically with the with, 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 with cotton in the, in, the, in the early 19th century. America is not a massive producer of, of cotton in 1800. It becomes a huge producer of cotton um, by um, 1850, 60, um, partly because of technological innovations. Um, There's some so great stats in there too about how much milk a cow produces. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember them, but it's... I, no, I can't remember either. <laughs> no, no, a lot of stuff. Another, another sort of on the agricultural thing is that what, 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 what one of the things that happens in the 19th century which really surprised me is that the, the density of horses, the number of horses per person um, from between 1800 and 1900 goes up enormously. So you have, at the beginning of the period, I think one, uh, one, um, three horses for every person. No, one <laughs> horse for every three people. One person, three, three horses. By the end of it, no, three horses, one person. By the end of it, it's five horses, one person. Did you let um, no, Alan, 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 Alan Greenspan was doing yeah, the numbers? Yeah, he was doing the numbers. <laughs> By the end of it, anyway, the number of horses per person goes up very substantially. Yeah. And you'd think that in this period where you've got the arrival of the railroad and all sorts of things, you'd need fewer and fewer horses. But in fact, the railroad takes you from the town centre to the town centre. So you've got to move all of these goods. So you've got more, much more goods flowing mm -hmm. through the economy. So you have to <coughs> take them to people's houses. So you need more horses to, to, to do all that sort of stuff. There's lots of stuff about agriculture, which I found. Um, very interesting. Um, in terms of um, the period, I think it's the period from 1865 to 1900 is really the one that, 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 that shocks me, that you go from an unrecognizable economy, you know, where, 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 where people are living a very, very different life from the one we lead. So by 1900, it's a recognizable economy. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got chewing gum, you've got skyscrapers. Um, you, you've got motor cars, you've got all of these the, the sorts of things. You've got, I think, a very, about 30 of the world uh, companies that now exist, and you know, big companies that now exist, already existed by the end of the 19th century. That, so that period has taken a pre, you know, almost a pre-industrial, pre-modern economy and, made, and uh, transformed into a modern economy. And that was done without much involvement by the government, um, done without any process of planning or any uh, anything, it was just it was just pure creative destruction. That was the greatest laboratory of creative destruction ever seen in the history of the world, I think. And just one final point on that, I thought it was really interesting your book. The the point you make that at the, during that period, America was the, simultaneously the most democratic yes. um, country in the world and yes. also the most um, you know the most laissez-faire with the smallest government. So there was this weird thing happening where yes. people weren't asking for more Absolutely. from the government. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. was, that was, anyway. Um, so, uh, questions from the audience. And as I said, uh, Adrian is willing to bravely <laughs> promise to switch hats and talk about Brexit if anyone wants to uh, dare to do that. Uh, Sam, yeah. Good. So Deirdre McCloskey says that yeah. the key to economic growth is the sort of respect for the middle class, respect for capitalists, and the sort of esteem they're held in society. Mm -hmm. It seems like usually most times you read about businessmen, it's 
typically got a negative tone in pretty much any publication if you open the Economist and CapEx, obviously. CapEx, of course. Well, you, you see very few articles yeah. essentially saying, like, this person founded a five billion pound company, they're doing quite well for themselves, they're very clever and good, keep at it. <laughs> obviously, it's not news in the traditional sense, but you know, it's not that same sort of. Well, I. Um yeah, that's a great question. I would say, you know, I was going to say, change the personnel on, on the Today programme on the radio. And the <laughs> you know, that is a programme which seems to be saturated with dislike and contempt for business. But to give a slightly more serious answer than that, um, I think that if you look at the attitudes of, of, of the younger people, um, they seem to be not quite schizophrenic, but they're very divided about these sorts of things. Because on the one hand, there's a sort of anti-capitalist guardian sentiment. On the other hand, there's a lot of liking for Uber and... Uh, and you know, uh, and entrepreneurs. It's much more pro-entrepreneur. You know, when I when I was at Oxford, the, the word entrepreneur didn't exist. This was a very long time ago. But the word entrepreneur hardly existed, um, and you know, there was no sense of becoming uh, an entrepreneur. People went into the civil service or uh, uh, or academia or things like that. They wouldn't go into business. Now it's much more likely to go into business, and I think there's a big sort of entrepreneurial club that people people go to. So I think attitudes have changed, you know, particularly driven by the by the 1980s, but um, I think the millennium generation is, is, is quite pro a sort of capitalism. Um, the question is, um, people become more ambivalent when it comes to bigger companies. Um, and I would say bigger companies, uh, I'm also actually, I feel quite ambivalent about it. Uh, because uh, on the one hand, I think, you know, a big company is essentially a successful small company. There's nothing wrong with that. But we do have um, a, a sort of very cliquish um, corporate world. We also have um, a rather cronyist corporate world in this company. So one of the things that we need to do to to um, to improve people's attitudes to business is be, it should be a lot less 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 crony capitalism, more real capitalism. I suppose is, is my formulation. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yep. Capex sounds for popular capitalism. Mm-hmm. Trump is arguably the poster child of popular capitalism. With arguably. coal, steel, <laughs> protecting it with tariffs. On the other hand, 
Brexit as an example that has to create disruption. How do you get people to vote for creating disruption? How do you make it popular? Um, well, I, I, I exempt myself from, from your statements, both about Brexit and, and, and Trump, let me say, but let's not get, in, get into those. And CapEx. But how do you get people to vote for popular capitalism? It's, 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 it's quite interesting. As we were talking about earlier, one of the strange things about the, the late 19th century in America is it's uh, uh, an area where capitalism in some ways is, is, is really quite popular. That it's the world's most democratic society, but also the world's most capitalist society. And people, when they vote, are not voting overwhelmingly for, for, for bigger government. They quite often voted for, for, for less government. If you look at the 1980s in um, the United Kingdom, there was you know, a lot of support for popular capitalism. And I think the age, the voting age of Mrs. Thatcher's electorate was rather different from the conservative electorate at the moment. A lot of young people voted for for, for, for Mrs. Thatcher because they saw her as somebody who was opening up opportunities and attacking um, oligarchies and established uh, interests. So it's quite, pop it's quite pop possible to have people voting for popular uh, capitalism if they can see capitalism breaking, uh, opening opportunities. That's what you need to do. You need to link the advance of capitalism to the, to the opening of opportunities. And now, too much of capitalism has been captured by vested interests, or so people are not going to vote for that, particularly if those vested interests are, you know, are bankers. You know, what happened in 2008 with the bailing out of the banks? You know, we had the, you know, the privatization of profit and the socialization of risk is something which has quite rightly damaged people's, people's you know, attitudes to capitalism. It's going to take a long time. To, to, to deal with that. You, know, the, you need to hang a few bankers, as it were. We need to make sure that people who are perceived to be um, profiting through cronyism and through subsidism, the rest of it, are held accountable for that and um, make sure that bad capitalists are punished for being bad and good capitalists are rewarded for being good. Yeah, for the back there. Yeah. Um, what parallels do you see between the antitrust process that went on in the late 19th, early 20th century, where Standard Oil and others were broken up, and what's been going on in terms of conversations going on on the other side of the pond about going after Facebook and Google and Amazon. Now, some of it, as far as I can see, seems to be driven by just political, straightforward political dislike of the likes of Zuckerberg and others, which... Perfectly reasonable motions. <laughs> <laughs> face of innovative big capitalism uh, today is the tech people, and the face of innovative big capitalism then was, 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 was Rockefeller and the rest of them. They, they were simply the public face of, uh, of, uh, of capitalism, so people went after them because people knew who they were. Um, I think that um, the parallels, um, the truth is that what happened with the antitrust movements in the late 19th century has been massively overstated um, as a movement. You had a few token um, heads that rolled, Rockefeller, Standard Oil, sort of broken up and not really broken up, uh, a few knuckles that were wrapped. But after, and, and Teddy Roosevelt making a great deal of fuss about taking on the vested interests and the rest of it, 
in fact, what you see after about 1903 in America was a huge process of mergers and consolidation, masterminded by J.P. Morgan. Um, and in fact, while you're getting a, a lot of sort of jabber about antitrust, you're getting in reality a consolidation of the economy, really. And I suspect you may well get the same thing with, with, um, with, with Zuckerberg and the rest of it. Um, I, uh, the, the, the second question about whether I think these things should should be broken up. I'm, I'm very worried about the uh, about the dominance that they have, um, partly because I don't like them. I don't like Zuckerberg. I think he's ghastly. Um, um, but partly because I think that the rate of innovation is not what it should be, because they're they're they're, they're basically incumbents who are bent upon uh, defending uh, defending their, their their position. They've ceased to be. Silicon Valley is not what it what, not what it used to be. I say, I think, of, and I think that when you have people being, you know, when you have these network effects, it, it is a real it, it, it is a real problem for competition. Uh, just a, just a quick yeah. follow up question on that. You brought J P Morgan up. Um, yeah. Do you think there's another? How much do you think that sort of the capitalists themselves deserve a bit of blame in the sense that there's a maybe there was a sort of public spiritedness among these sort of titans 100 years ago that doesn't exist now. So you would there would be a sort of sense, of, a greater sense of social responsibility if you were running a bank in the 20s versus if you're running a bank today. Do you think that, well, that's a point that's sometimes made about, you know, the, 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 it wasn't quite as kind of, um, you know, out, out for myself then as it, as it is now. Uh, do you think that's a, do you I, much I, in that I, argument? I don't know. I mean, I think... Uh, I think J.P. Morgan was an extraordinarily brilliant uh, banker and, and brilliant man, but his basic, uh, what he really wanted to do was to use economies of scale and the rest of it to, um, to create greater efficiencies, but create greater efficiencies by reducing competition. Whether he was a, a more moral man, I mean, I, I think his mistresses probably wouldn't have regarded him as a more moral man, um, or his wife certainly wouldn't have regarded him as a more moral man. I think he probably there, there's more there was a sense of philanthropy that was very much there. But I think it's also I was very rude about Zuckerberg, but I mean I think that, 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 that there is a sense of philanthropy there in America. That's part of the sort of DNA of American capitalism. That is mm. that, 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 is, that is a good thing. One of the weirdnesses that is going on now uh, in America is that you have a real split political split within the, the, what, what you might broadly call the capitalist class um, between the tech people um, who are all Democrats and who are intertwined with the Democratic Party. And if you look at the, the personnel of the Democratic Party, you know, once Obama went, they all went to work for the tech companies. Absolutely. Tech companies are full of people who used to work for Obama. That people on the one hand are sort of more mainstream companies. That, that, that manufacture things mm. and, 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 and dominate the real economy, who tend to be Trump supporters. And I don't think you have that, that split. So, so you have a peculiar position where Trump is willing to bash the tech people and defend the, the other bunch of people, and then you'll get the reverse when we next get a, a democratic president. So there's much more, much more antagonism within, within, as it were, Wall Street than, than there used to be. Okay. Yep. Sort of a slightly different question. What was the collaboration like with um, Alan Greenspan? You know, I demonstrated rather well my lack of familiarity with whether two or five are smaller than each other. Um, <laughs> he, he was very good with numbers, um, uh, much better than me. 
Um, Greenspan has spent his entire life sort of looking at the American economy and collecting facts about the American economy. And he loves facts about the American economy. And although he's, you know, a Randian um, and a free marketeer uh, and the rest of it, and a real believer in creative destruction, as indeed am I, he, he's also obsessed by the minutiae of, 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 you know, all these minute details uh, uh, about how, you know, how many left shoes were produced in Pittsburgh in 1873 and things like that. Uh, and but that, I should say, is one of the great things about the book, is there's, <laughs> yeah. barely, there's barely a paragraph yeah. without it. So we've got lots of facts, and he, he, he had these facts. So I think this combination of having a theory about how, how the world works, but also being really interested in these <coughs> facts, and there is a lot of data in this book, which you know, none of the reviewers have pointed this out, you know, that there's a lot of data in this book, including data on productivity growth, which isn't available anywhere else. You know, he's got a lot of, you know, d done a lot of work and his team there have done a lot of work on, 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 on uh, just the, the, the hard statistical basis of, uh, of what's going on in, in, in the American economy. So the, the, I used to, you know, it was peculiar. I used to work in Washington for many years, you know, um, and then when I got to know Greenspan, I'd already moved to England, so I had to keep going back to Washington, fly from London to Washington to talk to him to get a lot of this stuff, um, which was a sort of, um, would have been easier if I'd written the book 10 years ago. But the Any other question? At the back there. Hi. Uh, so just with regard to the idea that uh, money has been crowded out due to all the entitlements, mm -hmm. so Robert Gordon, who you mentioned, in yep. his review of your book in the Financial yep. Times, uh, he argued that as much as we now see pretty low bond yields, then traditionally the mechanism for crowding out was through higher bond yields. And now, sort of, it's re it is quite cheap for companies to access capital. Uh, it's got a bit more expensive the last few months because perhaps the bond market has sold off. But uh, relative to history, it's rather cheap. So, do you do you accept that, or do you recognise that critique at all? Uh, that you know, perhaps there isn't as much crowding out as all that, given how low uh, the cost of debt is. Yeah, I think that's a good critique. But what I would say is what you're seeing in the United States is just a larger and larger proportion of people who are in the non-productive economy, who are, who are not producing things. Mm -hmm. And that must surely hold back the rate of growth, the rate of innovation, the rest of it. They talk about you know, old people, older people, retired people. Um, you know, these people could easily be much more productive. A lot of people, you know, they might not want to uh, retire. Uh, and they're certainly capable of, <laughs> of being productive in, in, in an ideas-based, um, brain-based economy. So I just think having, keeping on, as it were, for a society to keep so many people um, in an unproductive <coughs> role at a time when the number of younger people is going down is not is not a sustainable thing. And I also think, with, again, with the disability. And also what we have don't talk as much about in this book as perhaps we ought to have done, which is the number of people who for reasons other than just disability, dis men who are disappearing from the from from the labour force. America has a, a relatively low, um, by OECD standards, very relatively low participation uh, in the labour force from men, um, and that's again, it can't be good for any economy to be have uh, a lot of passengers uh, like that. But I do recognise the force of that critique. Yep. Uh, do you have any observations about China? <coughs> Excuse me observations about China, which appears to me to be another country that has obviously transformed itself in a short mm -hmm. period of time. Um, I'm wondering if they have, possibly by other names, embraced sort of creative destruction, or uh, if there are any parallels or uh, obvious differences in the way that they have um, they achieved their growth. I imagine one of those would be that possibly not as much innovation there, yeah. um, but on the basis of the same. Look, 
There are massive parallels, massive parallels in terms of the, uh, the rate of growth, although it's actually been higher in China because they're catching up, um, and in terms of their, their, their willingness to take destruction as a price of, uh, price of creation. I mean by that ruthlessness, essentially. Uh, huge parallels um, uh, between China and, and, and the United States. Um, and I would say that, the, the, uh, that there is a problem with, with um, innovation. I don't think Ch China's been a very fast follower. I think it's hard to think of any area where it's been an innovator. It's, um, um, and if you, one of the most remarkable things about America is that from the middle of the 19th century onwards, uh, in the middle of the, up to the middle of the 19th century, Britain is the innovator, in and the United States stealing stuff, stealing stuff from Britain and following Britain. But by the middle of the 19th century, America becomes the, the most innovative um, of these countries and <coughs> remains the leader in innovation up until today. Um, and that's a remarkable thing. No other country has done that to, to have that sustained leadership in the cutting edge of the economy. Um, so that's an area where it, do, it is superior to China. But China is, 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 is pretty impressive. And I, you know, one thing I think about is if you were, when um, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America in 1835, um, he was saying what country would define the future and what values would define the future. And he says it's America that will define the future and it's democracy and liberty that will define uh, the future. And that's a fairly optimistic view of the world. Now, if you were Alexis de Tocqueville and you're looking at the world now, it wouldn't be so clear that it's the United States. You could write a very compelling book called Non-Democracy in China and say it's China that will define the future and it's authoritarian, top-down capitalism that will define the future. And one of the things that Hayek always said, that the reason why um, capitalism will triumph is because it's a fantastically, the market will triumph because it's a fantastically successful information processing machine. But what happens if the, um, the Chinese can, by using algorithms and high-tech and, and artificial intelligence, can, can, can as it were, nationalize um, information processing and create some fantastically successful information processing machine that can plan their economy far better than anybody had done before. So there are interesting possibilities for the future, but it's not clear that it will be democracy in America that will win. Right, you had to add a part of that. Uh, uh, no, I was this guy, actually, sorry. Another comparative international question, just based on um, your reflections and observations of Britain's this book, um, any thoughts on what can be done to increase um, creative destruction here in the United Kingdom uh, in our economic life, our cultural life, especially outside of London? Uh, and um, do you ever see us being uh, at a point where, thinking about some of the economic literature and newspaper observations earlier, there would be something like, uh, I don't know if you know, Magazine you want to see Investor Business Daily that kind of celebrates the entrepreneurial and financial newspaper as, as a, a daily. Um, that's as being part of kind of a, the, the, a daily that people would talk about in Britain. Yeah, I mean, no, none of these people see The Economist as a champion. Yeah. What are you doing <laughs> wrong? <laughs> rather concerning that. Um, that's, I think that um, we have in this country a very centralized country and a very centralized economy and an enormous amount of economic activity is controlled by the city of London um, and by a sort of old boys and old girls club down there and I'd like to which is intertwined with, with, with government and what we need is to make it we need more 
high growth companies, uh, more um, high growth um, entrepreneurs, more ambitious entrepreneurs, and a less um, centralized economy. So I would have, you know, I think this, I'm very keen on this idea of regional mayors, local mayors. I think that's, that's a good thing that the, the last government did. Very keen on devolution uh, away from London. Very keen on doing something to limit the power of, of the Treasury. Very keen on changing the, 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 the culture of the country. But ultimately, um, ultimately, I think that it's got, it's got to be a bottom-up and it's got to be an outside London thing to solve, to, to solve our problems. One thing I've this is slightly tangential, but it's not entirely tangential. Uh, that is that I'd love to see the process of creative destruction applied to the capitalist class much more than we have. What we have in this country is a lot of very um, superficially successful complacent incumbent companies with lots of superficially successful complacent overpaid directors. <laughs> Um, and one thing I'd like to, you might see is that the function of directors could easily be contracted out, let's say, to companies that specialise in the jobs that directors do, and that also employ a lot of machines, machine learning, algorithms, and the rest. Because a lot of what directors are doing is ticking boxes and doing all the Sarbanes-Oxley Oxley stuff. So you could get rid of this whole management structure, which is sitting there in the city of London, and which is really parasitic on growth. These people aren't innovative. They're rent seekers, and their work could be much better done by um, through a process of division of labour and contracting out. So let's have let's have a, a, a bit of creative destruction applied to the very heart of um, uh, of capitalism. That would be good for us all. Last question. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think you've mentioned a couple of times uh, about the sort of so-called fangs in America and how perhaps they've become a little bit flabby and no longer that innovative, less creative destroyers yeah. and more non-creative assimilators of ideas from smaller yeah. startups. How much of it do you think rests with them and getting them to sort of perhaps change their ways and creating the circumstances for that, or how much rests with the smaller innovators being truly innovative and unafraid of failure and bankruptcy? You know, potentially, um, rather than just pursuing the ideas that will then get hoovered up by by the fans. Well, I think the problem with these companies is uh, it's, a, it's a problem fundamentally with, with with network effects. That once you're once you're an incumbent, you have a huge advantage simply because of the amount of information and the, uh, and the number of people and the utility that you provide by being connected to to, to, to large numbers of people. But last time I was in Silicon Valley, all these people who were running um, small companies, they say, well, what we basically are looking for is sugar daddies, sugar daddies. They wanted somebody to buy them and give them lots of, lots of money. And I think that's an un un unhealthy situation. How you get rid of it because of the nature of the, you know, the utility is how many customers you've got is very, very hard to think of. But you see, you're not only buying up companies, but you're buying up many of them essentially to kill them because you don't, you don't want them to compete with you. Uh, so that's as far as I wanted. And I just want to finish up by saying something because we haven't talked about this. And I feel guilty that we haven't talked about this. Um, which is slavery. I mean, you have to remember that the United States had, you know, this inhuman system of slavery, and it was very important for, for the American economy for a long period of time. It ended, obviously uh, only ended with, with, with the Civil War. Um, and that was something that drove the whole economy of the South. It was also supported, of course, by the uh, economy of, of, of Liverpool and Manchester. But this is, you know, one of the few advanced 
com countries in the world in which slavery became more integral to the economy, more essential to the economy. Slavery by 1800 is looking as if it's going to die out. It's becoming slightly irrelevant. It's not, it's not central to the economy. But by 1860, it's absolutely a vital component of the economy because of various technological innovations, which mean that you can just do it much, 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 much more more cheaply, so there's one area you know which America should 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 rightly be ashamed of, but it wasn't just an irrelevant accident; it was something that was very important to to to, to, to that to that period. That was Adrian Wooldridge on capitalism in America. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.